0: What I, what I want to do today is. Uh, I'm going to grab my clicker I almost forgot my clicker. So many things to hold on to. I'm sorry, Jess. Um, what I want to do is uh, look at a passage from Colossians 3. So if you have Bibles or want to um, turn there, find, find what, where Colossians 3 is, kind of towards the end of your Bibles. It uh, goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, kind of for reference there. Uh, Colossians 3, 12 to 17. And. Um, what I want to do is, the reality is, I was thinking this past week, this is kind of my last chance to preach to some of you. So, uh, while I've got you here for just a few more minutes, uh, I want to kind of take cue from how a lot of New Testament letters end uh, and give you guys just a few final words of encouragement. You risen church people especially, but, uh, but for all of us. Uh, but a few final words of encouragement. In the shadow of the gospel that you guys have heard us preach here week in and week out, live out. But uh, preach in, uh, preach here week in and week out, many of you for years. Um, and you can consider it to a particular encouragement on what it means to be a part of a church plant. Some of you are leaving to start a church. Some of you might be doing that someday. Uh, some of you are staying. Most of you are staying. Uh, we're still kind of a church plant, I think. I don't know if 11 years in you can say that or not, but kind of feel that way a lot of times. We're a church nonetheless. So a church of any age, size, and demographic, uh, this section of Scripture, and many like them, speak to what it means just to live as a Christian in community, around other Christians, So that's a big deal. It's not just be saved and here's some advice on how to live in the world. It's you're saved through profession of faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what it means to live in relationship with other Christians as well. So it covers all the bases, but that particular aspect of letters being written to actual first century churches on what it means to get along, what it means to love each other, what it means to forgive, what it means to together uh, reach a city and to plant new churches. And so this letter was written by the the Apostle Paul in the first century when he was in prison. It was actually a church he planted, he started. He's writing back now in prison in Rome, writing back to encourage and uh, gives this kind of quick-hitting encouragement for the church before he sort of signs off Skype, basically. You know, just kind of saying, hey, here's a few things before I end to remember as you guys continue to live out the gospel uh, in, in community. And so it's a word for all of us, though I, what I want to do is just kind of here and there throughout this, speak to those of you that are leaving at in Church, but, but, uh, but it's for all of us who in any way are, are, are Christian and, and seeking to just live out the gospel in, in community. And if you're not a Christian yet, uh, one of the things you'll see with a passage like this is just how deeply gospel-centric uh, the Bible is when it talks about living, uh, Christian living. And so what I mean by that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his death and resurrection, really is the son of the theological solar system. So when things are talked about, like having compassionate hearts and being humble and teaching one another and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, those are things like planets that orbit around the fact that God came into the world as a human being and actually died, actually lived first and, and taught and healed, then he actually died, then he actually lay still, dead in a tomb for three nights In three days, and then he rose again on that third day. That actually happened for us. So it's not just an historical event, but it happened for our benefit. And some of those songs we sang, and I think Peter was saying that before that last song, that it actually affects freedom for us. It actually changes us and makes us new creations. So it's not stagnant, but it actually raises people with Jesus from the dead and and makes us new. And so if you're not a Christian, one of the things you're going to see in this passage is the gospel itself, the center of our faith. But to see how things orbit around that, so there's a lot to say then about Christian living, but in their proper in their proper order. So let's read Colossians three twelve to seventeen in full to begin, and we're just going to kind of walk through this devotionally today, making a few uh, making a few comments. So verse twelve, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so again, what what this is and passages like it in the New Testament, and there are many, is, is kind of a always remember to do this type encouragement to Christians. Always remember to do this. And always remember to think this way as well. It's not just about actions. It's about a way of thinking, a way of ordering our lives as Christians, again, primarily in community, primarily. This is actually assuming that when you're a Christian, you'll be in a church. just assumes it. When you're a Christian, you'll be a part of a church. You'll have accountability. You'll know people. You'll have friendships. And you'll know them so well that you'll actually hurt them. And they'll hurt you. It's real relationships, Right? Although you don't know people that well, you can't do that. So you'll, you'll know them so well that you'll, you'll be loved, you'll experience a lot of grace from them and vice versa, but there'll actually be a lot of pain as well. So it's all presupposed. Churchless Christianity is foreign to the Bible. Foreign. And so this, being written to an actual historical church in a real city in the first century, presupposes that you know other Christians, and it's a always remember to do this, Christians, to each other, uh, as you bring the gospel to more people, and ongoingly to each other, and to think this way, as well. Kind of, I was thinking this past week has the feel of a pastor giving a final encouragement and a benediction to a couple uh, before he presents them at a wedding. You know, it's kind of so. I, I'm just about to present you, but before we do that, remember to do these few things. Always remember to forgive. Always remember to love. Seek the unity that comes from the gospel of peace. And and then and then they present. So it's kind of one of those final moments before. Uh, as I said before, again, Paul, Paul signs off here. So, so again, a few things on this. I want to walk through this kind of top to bottom, make a few comments on a few of the high points. There's a ton of things here. i encourage you to, to go home and, and meditate on this all the more uh, by yourselves and with your families and, and with your community groups and Risen Church uh, together too. So so first, let's look at this first clause. It's actually not the first words in our English translations, but it's, uh, it is kind of the qualifier to the, the imperative in the first uh, few words there in verse 12, which is put on something, we'll get to that. But he says, this is what I want to address you as first. This is the type of people I'm, I'm addressing. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, do these things. This is a really important kind of theological qualifier that's, that's littered throughout the New Testament that's really important not to miss. He begins by identifying who these people are in Christ. These aren't just random people he's asking to be good. These are Christians he's calling to live in a way consistent with their newfound identity. It's really important to see the difference there. He's not just randomly calling people to be good. He's calling out specific people who have been saved and loved by God. And he's saying, live as though that's true. Live as though you're actually a new creation. Live as though you've you've been resurrected from the dead. And so he says, hey, church, God's chosen ones, do all this stuff. Live this way. Not pretty great people, try harder, but chosen by God ones. Holy, which means set apart or purified in him. And beloved or loved ones, go and live this way. And remember, in the Bible, uh, choice and love go hand in hand. To choose is to love. Like a man chooses to commit for life to a particular woman rather than rolling a die. You know, that that for life monogamy is for for life, it's sacrificial, and it's a choice. So to choose is to love. To love is to choose according according to God. So to say choose and love here is almost synonymous, but that's who we are. If you're a Christian, that's who we are. So he's saying, remember that. You've been picked out. You've been chosen by God in love to death and back. That really happened, and it's happening uh, currently by God's present work of the Holy Spirit. So in Bible interpretation, uh, we say, the indicative informs the imperative, which means the what's true about us in the gospel informs the imperative or the command. It's never the other way around. This isn't like, yeah, it's kind of the, the general rule, but there are some exceptions. It's never the other way around. The indicative, what's indicative about us, grammatically that's the case, what's true about us in Christ, chosen one's beloved, that informs the command or the imperative. Never flips. This is a unique thing to the Bible, a unique thing to Christian theology. It's important to put our finger on and, and notice. It's very easy to miss, very easy to read over but the indicative always, that that's what's true about us. The love state that we have in Christ always in, informs our actions. So then we don't work our way into being loved. We're loved. So we live freely in that love. We walk in the light because he first shone his light into our tombs and put flesh back on our bones. That's the gospel. And so then he goes on then, uh, or to unpack the first part of this, With the qualifier stated, he says, God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, loved ones, chosen ones by him, put on these things. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility and meekness and and patience. And I underline this because those are also, relatedly to what we just talked about, really important words to hear in the Bible and Christian theology. He says, put on these things. I think some translations say clothe yourselves but uh, but literally in the Greek it's it's put on put on these types of attributes compassionate hearts and kindness and put on humility wear it kind of like a jacket and that's important because he says put on not tap into he says wear this don't tap into it inside Because other religions say tap into that inherent goodness and willpower that you so naturally have. But the gospel says put it on. Put on goodness. Meaning it's distinct from us. Like a a jacket that I wore here this morning, this light jacket. Wasn't me, but I wore it. It looked like it was me when I walked in the building, but it's distinct. I had to look on my coat rack and go walk over to it because it wasn't me. It's different. So it is with good works. Good works aren't from us, but a distinct objective object to us. It's outside of us, something that God gives us to wear. It's part of what Jesus wins for us when he dies for our sins and rises again. He wins a new life for us. Makes it possible that we can be different. Not so much a coach to pat on our back saying, good job, keep tapping into what's kind of good deep and down inside of you. But he says, I'm giving you a new life. Wear my humility. Wear my kindness shown to you. Wear my meekness. Put it on. I'm giving you the grace and the ability to to do that. So the fact that Paul says put on, it's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? Just period, like put on humility. Why don't you just say be humble? Why don't you just say be kind? It would be so much easier. But he says put on humility. Put on kindness. It's not again humble ones access that inherent humility, but he says chosen loved ones put on humility. It's a very different thing. In Revelation 19 we see the same idea. He says, let us rejoice and John says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage of Jesus, has come and his bride, the church has made herself ready. This is the key. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then the the symbolism here that John has seen is is described or identified. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It was granted the church to clothe herself with fine linen, to put on the righteous righteous deeds that God would have for them. You see the same imagery? It was granted them, given to them to do that, to put on righteousness, to put on righteousness. Humility. So the picture is that the church is being purified in good deeds, but it's by grace that we're saved unto that end. So, what this is saying is do good. Do good in the name of Christ. We'll come to that with how he ends. But there's more here as well. There's more good news. Whenever you do good, credit God. Whenever you do good, Whatever good thing happens in your church, credit God. And so what, what happens then when we, when we think this way, speaking for myself for a second, I was thinking this past week a lot about this. When we think that way, when we're actually able by God's grace to be kind to someone or to show patience or to have humility you know, or meekness, a true merciful and compassionate heart towards someone. You know, If I were to do that, in that moment, and I, was, and, I, and I was thinking that that's something God gave to me, not something that I tapped into, but something God helped me to put on. It's something he granted me to walk into. He actually caused that experience. As much as I might have worked for it, he caused that experience. One of the reasons why it's so important to think that way is it's a way to experience God and to remember his grace. So again, if, if I'm working at showing patience to someone or kindness... All of a sudden I'm thinking, you know, if I'm thinking God caused that grace to flow out of me, then all of a sudden I'm thinking, wow, that's a really cool moment. God was right there in that moment. He made that moment for me to walk into it. I wouldn't have been kind if he didn't intend it. And then I start to think, he's really involved in my life. He's right here, right around me and in me. And then I think, he must really care about me. He wants good to be done through me. He wants good to be done through you. And then I think that simple moment of being kind to someone, whoever it was, was a deeply spiritual moment. A deeply spiritual moment because it was from him. God loved me enough to die for my sins and he loved me enough to create that. And We can all be thinking this way. uh, To to create those moments. But, But here's the thing. None of those thoughts are possible if we think goodness comes from us. None of those thoughts are possible if you think goodness comes from you. Those moments of being good are less spiritual. You'll think about God less. You'll be less thankful because why would you thank him if it came from you? You have no one to thank. And thanklessness breeds joylessness. And joylessness just leads you further away from Christ. And this is why this passage is about thanksgiving, which... We're not going to talk a lot about today, but you'll see this. We have thankful hearts, which means thank God for everything. Everything. So, so what this is saying to, to Christians, if you're not a Christian yet, this is, this is the invitation to have this kind of life as a gift from God, not to work for it, to receive it. What he's saying is put on humility and meekness, not by trying harder, but by taking a deep breath, and wearing the fact that Jesus died for you, and he loves you. Wearing the fact that Jesus was humble, and Jesus was meek. That's where all this goes back to. You know, in in a uh, a church plant setting, too, to speak to you risen church people, this isn't for everyone, this is for me, but risen church people. In, in In a church plant setting, you know, being meek means being okay when things don't go your way. You know, the church plant's not about you. It's not about Paul or, or Jamie. It's, uh, it's about the mission. It's about Christ and his kingdom being set up more in this city. And so being meek means getting small. It means being submissive. It means putting other people, other people first so that they might get big. The, and, and the power then to wear that type of mentality, that might sound burdensome. And if it does, I think you're kind of understanding it. That's actually really hard to do. It's really hard to not be full of ourselves and to think things are about us. It's really hard. Speaking this to Christians, for all of us, uh, wherever we are. But that's a really hard thing. So where does the power come from? It comes from remembering that Jesus was meek for me, personally, on the cross. He didn't champion his cause or exert his, all of his godness. But he condescended himself and became small that we might get big. He became poor that we might get rich. If we really let that seep in, this is why he writes the way he does. It's got to seep in here. And all of a sudden, it will flow a little bit more like a river out from our hearts. Because we'll see at the center of my belief system, it's not about me. It's about Jesus' love for me. So I'm a part of that story, but Jesus is the hero. So then he kind of builds on this. And there's a lot of things we could say here, but I'm going to focus on verse 13. It's a great verse. It's also a frustrating verse, but it's a great verse. He says, Bear with one another, if one has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So bearing with one another, So put on all these things and then kind of flowing from that as you bear with one another, as you just kind of put up with with one another. And if you have a complaint, just forgive them. One one interesting thing about this, I think, is just how simple it is. And I don't mean easy, uh, but simple. If you have a problem, this is saying, here's an idea, just forgive them. Just kind of let it go, he's saying. Don't gossip or slander or harbor a grudge. Or even run to church leadership. Isn't that interesting? There's a time to do that for sure. Don't get me wrong. that's, That's a different verse for a different day. But here it doesn't say that. It doesn't even say involve church leadership. Don't involve your elders. You know, maybe spare them some work and just forgive. You can do it. And this is presupposing Christian. This is not just for, you know, Christians who've been Christians a while or church leaders, but all Christians in the Church of Colossae, all Christians here, we... Are called to forgive. You know, I think again in a church plant setting, for but for Hiawatha too, I I think this means when we talk about bearing with one another, it means staying loyal to your local church. I I think it means being a part of the solution when problems arise, and problems will arise. It means sticking it out. You know, forgiving, praying, reconciling, and just bearing bearing with one another. Uh, not just because it's the right thing to do, it is, but because it demonstrates the gospel you preach and you bear and you just kind of wear every day you put, that you put on. And so here it is again. This is what we see in this verse. This is why he writes this way. He could have just stopped after that first couple of clauses, but he says, forgiving, this is part of what it means to bear with someone, you forgive them, but then he adds, as the Lord, or Jesus, has forgiven you. So as that first took place, so you must also extend that out horizontally towards other people. And he uses the word must. It's not optional. Uh, if, if, if uh, Actually, Jesus says at the end of the, in context with teaching people how to pray, the Lord's Prayer says, if you don't forgive other Christians, then God won't forgive you your sins. It's a pretty strong conditional. Uh, and And it's not a work, you might think, well, I thought it was about grace. It is. The point is, if we don't truly experience God's forgiveness, we're not going to want to forgive others. We're not going to pay that forward. We're not going to be free to do it. So if we harbor a grudge, if we don't forgive, how can we then say we've experienced the forgiveness of, of God through Jesus for bigger things? And so it's not just that you've been forgiven, it's, it's that you've been forgiven bigger things than anything that will ever be done to you the rest of your life. You, you have done the same, you and I have done the same things to others or even if we haven't, spiritually speaking, we're outside. We're outside the camp. We're distant from God. We've offended our creator by worshiping ourselves and, and we could go on. But, but he was patient with us in that. He forgave us through his son's blood. He provided a way home. And so the spirit of that needs to be dramatized in, uh, in and through our, um, our churches and our lives. It's, it's also why he says later, above all, put on love. Above all. So even more than forgiveness, because love is more active. But again, with the gospel in mind, we, we can ask these questions. Risen Church, Hiawatha Church, uh, whatever, Center Church, uh, whatever church we're, we're from here. Um, how will the gospel of love... You know, which is that God loved us to death and back through his son. How will that be truly understood if our churches have a lot of bitterness and have hatred kind of towards each other? And the flip side is the opportunity. If we have love amidst kind of a diversity, a diverse group of people, that will help it to be more tangible and understandable. And actually, I love how he says here, love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's one of those. Man, Paul, I love that, but what in the world does that mean? Statements, you know, it's like it's almost too poetic. But I think in part, everything means everything. I mean, everything includes not just all these things like compassion, humility. It also means uh, people. Love binds people together. It binds a diverse crowd of people in the gospel. It will bind together what we preach and teach. People will care more about what you have to say if you know that you love them. It, it kind of is the glue that makes the gospel sticky. So people stick around as you say hard things, maybe. Maybe things that they disagree with, things that are challenging, and we'll get to that. The gospel's offensive, too. But as you love people and are patient and truly give them the time of day and listen well to them and are, and are kind, just nice. Uh, but underneath the umbrella of love, you do all those things. It will serve as kind of this sticky uh, ness. You know, to, to the gospel, and people will, uh, in general, find it more tangible and real and appealing in the long run. Then he moves down to this statement. So, uh, skipping some things here, but this is uh, very important. <clears throat> this is something we need to do, Christians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. In you, Richard. The word of Christ is the gospel, the good news of his death and resurrection. Let that word, that ultimate good news, the ultimate thing God wanted to say in the world, dwell. So kind of take up residence in our heart. Let that wash over you for a second. Are, do you, are you doing that? In what sense is that true in your life? If it's true, cele- as much as it's true, celebrate it. As much as it's not true, pray for it. Ask God to do that more. And one of the big things I want to encourage you guys with through this, lots of little tributaries we could take here, but um, the big thing is don't let deeds outweigh your words. Don't let your deeds outweigh your words. Don't be known for just being good people. Be known for being gospel people or Jesus people. If you and I are just good, how are we different from humanists or Mormons or Muslims or Scientologists or other types of ladder-climbing moralists? How are we different? Why do you and I then bear a cross? What's the point? The cross is a stumbling block because it gets in the way of our attempts at being good without God. Precisely because it gets in our, in, in our way of being good without God, because why is a cross needed? Why did God's Son have to die if it's about our works? What, what, one of the things the cross does is it actually defines what salvation is really well, but also kind of what it isn't. It it, it conflicts with things. That that verse you read earlier from Romans three. The true righteousness of God now is revealed apart from law, apart from doing, apart from the Ten Commandments, apart from the conditionality wrapped up with do this or else. It's different. Jesus' blood spilled is a different kind of thing. So the gospel then will greatly console us. So we, as we think about what it means to let the word of Christ dwell in us, the gospel as an as individual, as a, a corporate group, a church, The gospel will greatly console, but it will also offend if it's real at all. I asked another pastor this last week uh, I was talking with, trying to understand how the gospel is working at his church. I asked him, when was the last time the gospel offended someone out of your church? Because the idea here is grace will always be too much for really, really good people. Unless God's working on their heart, but... Grace will many times be too much for really good people, but sweet news to messy people. So it will actually be grace, and, and that's uh, when Jesus is called the stumbling block himself. Uh, part of the idea is that there is that he trips up religious people in their uh, race-running moralistic endeavors. I don't know if you guys uh, saw this picture a year ago. You guys see this pic? Uh, this is the... Uh, 100-meter men's final, I believe. That's Usain Bolt in front and a bunch of poor guys in back just <laughs> struggling. Um, I think this is like the picture of the year, you know, not that I'm a big photography guy, but I just I thought this shot was unbelievable. Um, but look at this, you know, it, it's this guy's looking like on a Sunday jog, you know, looking back saying, <laughs> saying isn't this fun, guys? This is amazing, you know, it's the 100-meter men's final in the Olympics. Uh, but these guys, fastest men in the world just struggling you know and and a hundred meter dash it's a pretty big gap uh towards the uh towards the end but I got thinking about this picture this is not a shot of the same bolt please hear that but is but it is an example uh and that is this this is us uh feeling pretty good about ourselves morally relative to others at least You know, and so moralistically, uh, we feel pretty good about it when we're ahead of the curve. You know, and and what morals do is they tend to make us look at others and compare ourselves and say, well, at least I'm better than they. I remember when the Tiger Woods thing came out uh, when he first got caught with all this adultery stuff. You guys remember that? I remember uh, when that first came out, the first thing I thought of in my sinful, wayward, unbiblical heart uh, was, at least I haven't done that. That was my first thought. My second thought was, where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? That is about as ungospel, unbiblical, unchristian as you can think. Because in my heart, I am Tiger Woods. I've done the same things in my mind 10,000 times as he's done 20 times in the body. How am I really any better? Really. There's some kind of difference there, for sure. But, but really, at the end of the day, uh, how much am I, am I really better? But moralistically, then, look at, where, look at what he's looking at. Um, works can make us feel good about ourselves. There's a place for works in the Christian life. We've been talking about this. So, you know, we, this is the hard part of Christian theology. We've got to take all this together and, you know, throw it in our theological pipe and smoke it, my old mentor used to say. So you just got to, like, let it sort of, you know, whatever. So, but works can make us feel good about ourselves especially when we look back at others and see people not keeping up. The focus is on ourselves and others behind us. As long as we stay ahead of the curve, we might think. But to go back to the gospel, what what the cross ends up doing is it ends up tripping us up. The cross trips us up in the race of morality and we fall flat on our face. Because Jesus didn't die so that we might win the race with our own righteousness. He didn't, he didn't slowly asphyxiate in a cross among criminals, naked for six hours, so that he might say, Oh, yeah, by the way, I guess I wasn't really needed. You're pretty good. You can do it. Jesus didn't die so that we might win the race with our own righteousness. He came to be our righteousness. Our worth is in Jesus' death for us, not our own merit to go to that song. Do you, see, do you see and feel the freedom in that? Do you want to feel more freedom? Ask God for it. He wants you to have that. But the answer is not inside you. It's outside of us. Ask God to make this your experience. You know, you think things are going pretty well. The cross trips us up. Until all that's left is the man on the cross bleeding to death for us in love. So it's about Belief. So lots of things we could put at the center. Uh, you know, our culture is uh, extremely angry these days, uh, sometimes justifiably so, uh, but many times not. You know, it, it's, uh, it's good for us to remember uh, that political ideologies are not the center either, no matter how good they might seem. Uh, Again, anger can be rightly placed. Uh, The Bible says, in your anger, don't sin. There's a a right place to be angry against injustice and and evil. God shares it. Actually, there's there's a precedence in the Bible. God gave up his life to destroy evil. He hates sin. And we'd be right to to kind of share that type of angst and, and anger and for it to lead us to prayer and many times action. But at the same time, I think Christians have this kind of weird, like, almost conflicting combination between that and this sort of patience and closed-mouthedness that grace gives us. Because for us, sin is not just out there for us to get angry at. It's in here for us to mourn over. And we realize we're not better. Uh, You you see in Jesus' life how he he, um, reaches out to outcasts, but he still says to victims, you need me. Come to me and I will give you forgiveness. I will give you rest for your souls. And so the gospel then itself, and this is a good word for us in our culture, the gospel itself is not railing against sin and injustice. It's proclaiming forgiveness to offenders and healing to those who have been hurt, both through the blood of Jesus Christ. And see how that shapes how we approach things? It gives us some God-given slowness and maybe some hesitancy. Some carefulness with how we react to things, maybe with zeal, but also kind of married to that strangely some patience, and and it it doesn't allow us to to kind of misplace the gospel, which is the sun of the solar system, with political ideology or simply railing at injustice. Though that might be a part of the Christian life on, on some level, that's like Mars. What's the sun? It's very easy, very easy. We're so good at it. I think it was Luther who said, um, "Our natural language, our our our, our uh, birth language as 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 Christians or as people, is the law. It's works. We're really good at, at speaking in those terms. Grace is a foreign language. You know, hard is to learn a foreign language. Some of you are doing that. Some of you have. It takes a long time to speak it fluently. We're very good at replacing the center." with things that look really good. And so that is all a bit of a bunny trail. But the point is, uh, don't let anything replace the gospel. Not even good things. Because they too can become idols. And they too can confuse and muddy the waters for people you're trying to reach. So ask yourself this. People come to your church, say just for a couple of months, is it clear what the gospel is? Is it really clear? Or is it kind of muddy? Is it clear what the gospel is or is it, is it, uh, is it not that clear? Ask yourself that. Uh, and I'm saying this to all of us, not just resident church people. Uh, this is for all of us uh, at Hiawatha here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He does not say let political agenda dwell in you richly. I know it's kind of obvious thing, but it just needs to be said. He doesn't say that here. So let the word of Christ, the gospel, dwell in you and your and your churches richly. And then finally, uh, verse 17. I'm just mostly just going to read this. Um, there's much to say. He says, what, kind of a catch-all statement. Whatever you do, in word or deed, basically anything you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, God the Son, Jesus Christ. So whatever you do, and this could look like enjoying the things of earth as good God-given gifts. It could look like your church services, look like something spiritual or natural, look like eating hamburgers or look like writing sermons and everything in between. Whatever you do, Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, just being a thankful person. God gave me this moment. God gave me humility. God gave me kindness. God gave me this hamburger. God gave me this salad. God gave me that cool picture of Usain Bolt to kind of enjoy for a moment. You know, like that's, those are all underneath the umbrella of sovereignty of God. But do it all in the name of uh, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we run the risk of it just being moralistic noise. At best, and idolatry at worst. So a couple just uh, final personal remarks uh, to you guys, Risen Church uh, folks, uh, but again, um, all of you who are just seeking to sort of be a Christian in a church, most of you. Uh, the, what I think this is ultimately getting at, and this is why I think he ends his flow of thought, he changes gears after this, some of you guys know that, um, with this verse, is uh, your, your mission uh, it is really this important. Uh, it is to centralize Jesus Christ in everything that you do. Uh, and the word of Christ, which is, which is the gospel. Uh, a church's job is to herald the king. He's coming back. And, and so our job is to announce this. He's good. He's patient. He died for our sins. He rose again. Believe in that. Let it trip you up in your morality a little bit. Look at it. Gaze at it. Stare at it. Grow in it. Twist that diamond in the light. Appreciate it more. Be thankful more. Thrill. Let it shape your actions let it give you the right kind of anger but save you from the wrong kind. The right kind of zeal. But really that's our job is to announce Jesus Christ. Otherwise we're not a church. No, your mission, just to your risen church folks for a second, your mission really is that important. You, you are running a rescue station within a yard of hell. To quote C.T. Studd. what you guys are going to get to do like we are here. We're partnered in that. We're linking arms. In that endeavor. If you truly believe that, you will partner more, you'll love more, you'll value the word of Christ more, but you will care less about the color of the carpet in your eventual church building. And you won't let petty agendas or differences deter you from the greater mission of storming the gates of hell together underneath the banner of Christ crucified and raised on the third day for us. With that said, let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for the, the gospel according to Colossians 3, 12 to 17. It is about your forgiveness shown to us through Jesus. That's the Son. Uh, help our, the planets of our life and our churches uh, to reflect kindness and love and humility in action towards one another as we encounter a darkened world that lives contrastingly, but our hearts are so there as well many times. God, save us from ourselves. Help us to be meek and humble and kind, putting others first because you first did that for us and you changed us. God, save our churches from too much inward focus. Save our churches uh, from caring about petty things. Save our churches from replacing the gospel with some worldly agenda. They may not be that bad, but replacing it is bad, bad, wrong to do. You must be the center. Everything you've done for us has to inform the outer rings, God, uh, please help us to think more wisely. Uh, none of us, myself, I'm the first to say I don't do that well. I don't do that well. Uh, help me, help us all uh, to think more gospel-centeredly and rightly about your grace. Uh, may it be sweet, a sweet-smelling aroma to the lost in our context, but also uh, to some, though we don't want this, we know it will be an offense to those who think they're pretty good, because grace and goodness inherent really are incompatible. Uh, but help us to be strong and courageous uh, knowing that Jesus, you rejected Paul. You, Paul was rejected. His associates rejected, stoned, hated. Um, we bear a cross for a reason. Uh, so. But pray for more souls, God, more conversions, more baptisms, more leaders raised up, more churches planted. Uh, this city would be blessed more by there being another church in this city, risen church. Uh, may there be more of a blessing, more, more goodness, more of an outpost for proclamation of God is amazing. He came to rescue you. And as uh, uh, Paul shared earlier, that's just the reality. That's going to happen because you helped us not to be too stingy with our people and our finances. Uh, So thanks for the grace of that. That's from you. Um, But we pray for more people uh, to be folded in uh, by your grace. Amen.